Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, and guess what? Next week, we are concluding our fall preaching series through the book of Exodus. So here's what we're going to do. We have basically, we're going to end this series with a two-part message. So part one is this Sunday, and part two will be next Sunday. So essentially, it's it's one sermon spread out over two weeks. Uh, But we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 33 today. Before we dig into that, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless his word and, and help us to receive it and understand it today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, again, we're thankful that we get to be here. We're thankful that you are a God who speaks. Lord, let us be people who listen. Would you give us ears to hear? Let us receive your word And Holy Spirit, transform who we are. Change our hearts through the power of your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we saw one of the greatest failures of human history. The nation, the people that God chose to represent Him in this world back in those ancient times, the nation of Israel, they failed miserably. They were called by God Himself from their ancestor Abraham to be a light to the rest of the world. To show this broken, sinful world that there is a God. There's one true God and He loves His creation. He loves the people He created in His image, all people. And He wants to rescue them from their sin. He wants, He created us to to revolve our lives and center our hearts around Him and nothing else. And yet, what did these people do? Last week, they rejected all of that. They rebelled against their Creator. They forfeited, essentially, the mission that God called them to do. For what? Well, to give themselves to a golden calf. An idol. Something that they thought could give them what only God could truly give them. Security, peace, happiness, a future. You see, God's not okay with this. God is not okay with His people living in sin so deliberately, so passionately. They were singing. They were dancing. Do you remember that? God's not okay with this. He created us to love Him. He chose us out of this world to be His people, His representation in this world. So his judgment fell on the Israelites. He disciplined them because they broke the covenant that they agreed to keep. So now they're at a low point. I would say morale is very low because 3,000 of their men died and God sent a plague on them to judge them for this sin. And rightfully and righteously so. So the question now is, well, how will they respond? Is it over? I mean, like, really? I mean, essentially, shouldn't this be the end? It is more than fair for God to completely wipe them off the face of the earth. But what now? After such a great failure by the people of God, how will they respond? How will God respond? Is there even hope for a second chance? That's where we pick up in Exodus 33. Would you look with me in verse 1? The Lord said to Moses, Depart, 
Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Anybody ever called someone a stiff-necked person before? (laughs) Maybe other words, right? Listen, when God is saying that, we need to listen and take it seriously. What is he saying? God is saying, you cannot, you, you sinful people who are rebelling against me and rejecting me, you can't just walk about your business as if nothing happened with no remorse and no repentance. The holy, the holiness of God will consume them. They cannot live in the presence of a perfectly holy God who judges all evil, wickedness, and sin. They won't survive, right? That's why God said, don't touch the mountain. When he was on the top of the mountain, remember that? And he's giving the law to Moses. He says, the people down below don't even touch this holy mountain because you are sinful. You cannot enter into his presence. So God says he will fulfill his promise to Abraham, he will bring the people to the promised land. He's not going to he's not going to reject the promise that he made to Abraham, their ancestor, right? He's going to give them that land so they can be that nation to represent him in this world. But he says that he's not going to directly go with them along the way. He'll send an angel. But look what Moses says. Moses pleads with God, verse fifteen and sixteen of chapter thirty-three, and he said to him. So this is Moses speaking to God. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, Moses says, but Lord, what makes us distinct from the rest of the world is that we do have your presence in our lives, is that you do walk alongside us. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Do you see the grace, the mercy that the Lord is having here? Moses, though, is interceding on behalf of the people and God grants mercy. So the Lord agrees to go with Moses and his people on this journey to the promised land. But not only that, God is going to renew the covenant that they broke. He's going to make it whole again. He's going to take their brokenness and give them a new covenant here. He's going to renew it. Look at this, verse 30, or chapter 34, I should say. Exodus 34, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. You know, they broke them not only physically, right, but metaphorically as well. Be ready by the morning, right? Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. So here we go again. Moses is going back up the mountain, right? He's going back up the mountain. He came down. The last time he came down, it was a train wreck. 
The people were worshiping a golden calf that they made out of the fire that Aaron made for them, right? And there was just all kinds of chaos. They were singing and dancing and worshiping this thing. Look at verses 5 through 10. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and listen to these words, okay? This is a beautiful, one of the best descriptions in the whole Bible of who God is. You know why? Because this is God himself describing himself. We should listen, listen. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So we see the love, the grace, the mercy. God God affirms that is part of His character. That's who He is. But you know who He also is? Look at this. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And did you hear that? (laughs) God is going to use these people to do something awesome. Did you let that register, right, in our minds? God is going to use these sinful, stiff-necked, right, stiff-necked people, these rebellious people who have screwed up and ruined their lives, right? He is going to use them to do something awesome in the world? Why would God choose them? Why would he stick with them? Why would God be faithful to them when they have been unfaithful to him? God is not finished with these people. You know, some of you here today may be wondering or may be thinking, that's exactly where I feel like my life is. Or maybe that's where my life has been. In other words, what I mean is maybe you feel like the people of Israel. You have made your life a train wreck in some way or perhaps in the past you've committed some kind of sin that just eats away at your conscience and it takes away your sleep. It makes you nervous and anxious. There's triggers that make you think about it as you go throughout your day and you go throughout your week. And you feel like a failure and you wonder, I don't think God can use me. I don't think God really wants me. What we're going to see today and next week is that our God is a God of second chances. His love and His grace and His mercy are far, far stronger than whatever sin you've committed. But He takes that sin seriously 
seems like a paradox, is there hope for a second chance? Have we completely blown it and might as well give up? What's the answer to these questions? You see, the final major point that we're going to talk about today and next Sunday as we conclude this amazing epic journey through Exodus is this. It's real simple. We can persevere. We can persevere in this life in faith. Not because we decide that we can do it. Not because we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps or we just muscle up the willpower to do it. We can persevere in faith because of God's faithfulness to us. Period. There's a few sub-points. Really just two. We're going to look at one today and one next week. The first sub-point supporting truth for that statement is this. We know Here's why we can persevere. Because of God's faithfulness, we know He will not give up on us. Look in verse 1 again of Exodus 33, where we started today. What did God tell Moses? So after the golden calf incident, after their their rebellion, their rejection, their sin, God says, depart, go to what? To the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. Now I want to be very clear here. The nation of Israel are God's people. They already are His people. They already belong to to Him, right? He has made them His people. So their relationship with God, listen closely, is not, is not dependent on the amount of love they have for God. That is not what determines their relationship. The the relationship is determined on the amount of unconditional love that He has for them. Their status with God is not dependent on the amount of faith they have. It's dependent on God's faithfulness to them. God's people are His people. No matter what, always and forever. In our cancel culture today, it's hard for us to understand this concept of forever unconditional love. It's hard for us to understand this concept of forgiveness because our culture today, as soon as someone does something wrong, cancel them. They're done forever. There is no such thing in our pop culture as forgiveness. Think about your kids if you're a parent, right? No matter what your kids do, you will always be their parent. No matter what you do, no matter what they do, I hope that all your days you will love them no matter what. They will still be your children even if they greatly disappoint you. You see, that's similar to our relationship with God. No matter what I do, that doesn't cancel my relationship with God. I am His forever. You are His forever if you have accepted the blood that He spilt for you. So the promise that God made to Abraham, it still stands. The purpose that God has for Israel still stands. He will fulfill it. However, and this is a big however, this does not mean that God's people can just go and live however they want. So if you see anything in Exodus, you should see that, right? 
I mean, we see God's faithfulness, but we also see that he demands his people to be obedient. And when they aren't, there are serious consequences. So here's the thing. God is not going to sweep your sins under the rug. There is no giant rug in heaven that he's just sweeping them under and saying, ah, don't worry about that one. You're good. I'm just going to love you anyways. That's not good parenting. God takes the sin in his people's lives very seriously as he has already demonstrated in this Exodus story. His people must understand his holiness and their relation to God because of their ongoing sin, the complications of that. They've got to understand these things. Look at verse 3 of chapter 33. God tells them, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people, right? So again, if a holy God chooses to dwell among a sinful people, their stubborn sin will be exposed in God's presence, right? And he will not, he cannot overlook it. But what happened? You see the friction here? Holy God, who loves his people, sinful people who aren't loving him very well right now, there's some serious tension there. How is it resolved? It's resolved when there is an intercessor. There is a representative on behalf of the people named Moses who intercedes on behalf of them. He pleads with God for him to go with them on this journey. And what does God do? He listens to the intercessor. He listens to the representative. He listens to Moses because he is a gracious God and he loves these people. And Moses has found favor with him. And in chapter 34, what do we see? We see God himself give a description of his own character, right? Look at that again, because understanding the character of God in this episode is crucial to understanding this main truth of God's faithfulness, but how he also deals with sin. Look at that again. It's worth reading again. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, that's his personal name, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In other words, there will be natural consequences to our sin that may affect uh, following generations, right? So this is such this is such an amazing description of who God is though. And his great love and mercy, but also his seriousness towards sin, right? His holiness and his wrath and judgment. So Again, we're, we have this dilemma, right? Sin must be punished, but God is abounding in steadfast love. How do those two things reconcile? How can both of those things be true at the same time? It seems like a paradox to us weak and frail humans, right? We're emotional creatures who pretty much sway one way all the way or the other, right? We're either like really happy or really mad, right? It's rare that you can kind of be both at the same time, right? And this is not about happiness and mad. This is about holiness and righteousness and truth, grace and judgment, love and sin. How do all these things go together in the character of God and how he deals with sin? Well, 
Again, you have to understand Moses' role in this. The Israelites had Moses to intercede for them, to plead on their behalf. But here's the amazing truth that you need to know today. That was under the old covenant. And I got news for you. We're not under that same covenant today, sitting in this church, that the Israelites were under then. We live under a new covenant that God made with us, His people. And that means that we have a better, far more superior Moses interceding for us. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you see it? He is the intercessor. Last week, we talked about the idols in our lives that tend to enslave us, capture our hearts, make us devoted to them. We obey them. We look to them to give us what only God can give us. It could be anything. Anything in this world could be an idol in your life. You see, the golden calf incident should have been the end of Israel. It would have been more than fair if God completely just destroyed them all. That's the judgment, that's the penalty they deserved for rebelling against their God, their Creator. But the same is true for us. Every golden calf we have constructed in our lives, every idol we have given our hearts to is an incident of great failure and it should be the end of us. But we live under a new covenant. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God shows His love for us, New Testament church, Kernan church in 2022, right? God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A substitution. That, that is how God can show His grace and His wrath at the very same time it happened on the cross. On the cross is the only way that God's holiness and our sin can somehow be reconciled. That tension can be resolved. It's on the cross because Jesus took the sin of your idolatry on Himself, which is not fair to Him. But out of his great, abundant, steadfast love and faithfulness, he stepped in your place and said, punish me instead of Andrew. Punish me instead of him. Punish me instead of her. So God's wrath did burn hot and consume the sin and the idols in your life. Every single incident, your past, your present, and the ones you haven't even got to yet. Every idol that you may have devoted your heart to was crucified on the cross, on Christ, took the wrath of God in your place, and then what do we get in exchange? The abundant mercy and grace, the steadfast love and the faithfulness. Do you see how Jesus is the better Moses? He interceded for you. He pleaded with the Father and said, no, don't punish them punish me instead. Moses couldn't do that. He couldn't be the perfect sacrifice the people needed. 
That's why they had to keep killing the lambs every morning, every night, every morning, every night to show that they needed a sacrifice. But all of that was pointing to the Lamb of God, the true one Lamb, Jesus Christ. The things that Moses had to plead for are the blessings we have in Christ as children of God today. Look what he said in chapter 34, verse 9. He said, Lord, please, please, Lord, would you go in the midst of us? Would you go with us? Would you be present with us? Would you pardon us? Would you give us an inheritance? Those are exactly the things that Jesus secured for you through his life, death, and resurrection as your substitute in your place. Did you know that? God has secured those blessings for you. He has given you pardon, right? He has given you pardon, which means you have forgiveness. So whatever sin it is that you can't forgive yourself for, who do you think you are? Are you greater than God? Are you a greater judge than him to elevate yourself above his judgment on you that he poured on Christ and to say, no, Christ's death for my sin was not enough. So God, I'm going to hang on to this past sin that I committed and I'm just going to keep essentially sacrificing to it. It has become an idol in my life because I don't believe God that you can really forgive me. Who do you think you are? You're not the judge. God is. And he's already judged you for that sin. Jesus took it. You've been pardoned. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't care how bad you think you are. I don't care how far you think you've strayed. You've been pardoned. If you've turned your life to Christ, if you have trusted him, to be your savior and not yourself. Maybe that's the hangup. Maybe the hangup is you're trusting your own good works. You're trusting your own scale of, well, I think I've been good enough to earn God's love, but I don't know. What an anxious way to live. How will you ever know? If you're basing your salvation based on your goodness or lack thereof, how do you ever know you've been good enough? You'll never know. Christ has been good enough for you. You rest in what He's accomplished, not what you're trying to accomplish. That's how salvation becomes real. It's a change of heart. It's not a, it's not a magic formula of words you say. It's not from walking an aisle. It's a change of heart. It's a change of heart looking to Christ instead of yourself. Instead of your own track record, you trade it in for His. You've been pardoned. You have a future. Look at that in verse 9. You have a future, an inheritance. That's what Christ gives you. You don't have to work so hard for a future on this earth when really you've got the eternal future waiting for you. This life is so short. We pour blood, sweat, and tears into the things of this world when ultimately they're all going to fade away. They're all going to be destroyed. We're going to live forever in the riches of heaven with the inheritance that Jesus has for us. Are we living for that? You've got his presence. Moses said, please, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. And that's what you have, child of God. You have the presence of the Lord in you. This is how. This is how we know that God will not give up on us. Not because we have something amazing to offer him. We don't. But because of what Jesus has offered us, he has purchased us so we belong to God forever. 
Because the transaction, it's complete, it is finalized, and it's not like Target where you can return anything. There are no returns. There are no returns. There's no customer service desk in heaven. There's no returns for you. God's not going to give you back. How do you know? How do you know this is true? Because God is faithful. You look to the cross. That's how you know it's true. It's finished. It's final. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all, not just some, but all our trespasses by, listen to this, this is a beautiful word, canceling. You want to talk about a cancel culture? Your record of debt has been canceled by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We were in legal trouble with God, but Jesus stepped in and canceled that debt. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you're unsure of how God feels about you, then look no further than the cross. There's your answer. There's your hope. There's your security. There's your future. Because it didn't end at the cross. Jesus rose from the grave. He's alive. The baby who was born in Bethlehem came to earth to do these things. To save you. Romans 8 verse 1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. If you have repented of your sin, confessed it to the Lord, and trusted Jesus to be your true Savior, not yourself, right? Not anything in this world, but Him. If you have trusted in Christ, then there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Maybe you love to condemn yourself. I understand that. Maybe you love to condemn yourself, so you replay in your head your past failures, your past sins. And what does that lead to? It's just wallowing in self-pity. It's wallowing in pride. That's what it is. It's pride. It's a funny form of it, but it is. Again, why? Because you're elevating yourself above God. You're making yourself the judge. But the true judge has pronounced you forgiven, clean and innocent, because you have Jesus' record in your place. But some of us struggle to believe that in our hearts, even though we know it in our heads. And so I want to encourage you, how do you deal with that? If you wake up on Monday morning and Satan is already throwing lies at you, your flesh is already lying to you, and you've already forgotten this sermon, right? You wake up on Monday morning and you're right back at it. You're condemning yourself. You're looking for ways to condemn yourself. What is the answer? Again, it's the cross. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the one in your place. So just keep coming back to the truth. All those funny lies and funny thoughts that fill your head are not true. Keep coming back to the truth. What we know is objectively true. It's greater than yourself. It's the cross, the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just keep preaching that to yourself. You have to learn to do that. It's a discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. To meditate on God's truth, to get in His Word, to spend time in prayer thanking God. Thank Him every day for the salvation, for what He's done, for forgiving you, for paying that penalty on your behalf. Do you do that constantly in prayer? 
Do you do that consistently? Do you spend time in His Word? Do you preach the Gospel to yourself? Maybe memorize a verse would be helpful. Maybe memorize Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe memorize Philippians 1.6. This is a great one. Paul says what? And I am sure... I am certain, Paul says, of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Not might, right? I mean, there's a lot of things I might do between now and Christmas, right? I might get around to fixing some things around the house, but probably not. (laughs) That's not what this says. It's not if God gets around to it, if He remembers who you are. Oh no, He knows you. And He loves you. And He is. He is and He will bring to completion the good work that He has started in your life. If you're tempted to believe that God has given up on you in some little funny way, If that was true, then Philippians 1.6 that we just read would not be true. It couldn't be true, could it? Both of those things can't be true. Either He has given up on you or He hasn't. Because Paul says this is a certainty. Jesus is going to finish what He starts in the lives of His children, of God's children starts with salvation, with you turning your life to Christ, and then it continues. Life is a hard battle. It continues because the process of what the Bible calls sanctification is not easy. Over time, slowly, throughout your years, God is going to use every circumstance in your life and orchestrate moments, people, places to shape you. He's shaping you. He's molding you into the person He created you to be. He's going to take the things that are broken and make them new. He's going to take your fears and your anxieties and He's going to try to melt those away if you listen. If you remind yourself of truth every day, God is shaping us into the people He called us to be. That's what He's doing with the Israelites. He's not giving up on them. He wants to use them. He loves them. He wants them to fulfill His purpose of representing Him in this world. Child of God, the same thing is true for each of you. You can. You can persevere in faith. Not because of something you have to offer, but because of God's faithfulness today. He has not given up on you. Next week, we're going to talk about what that looks like in your life. What does it look like to understand that and to live that out? (laughs) Knowing God is faithful and will not give up on us. That changes everything about us. It should. 